Hello, you're listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast. As Alexander took his first steps across the Hellespont, he was entering into an old world, the area of Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq and Iran, a land that was heir to a tradition of state building stretching back to the earliest settlements of Uruk along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers of the 37th century BC, the Bronze Age kingdoms of Babylonia, Hatti, and Elam of the 13th, and the imperial Neo-Syrian Empire of the Ninth. This was a land whose history was as ancient to Alexander as he is to our own time. The culmination of this Near Eastern imperial tradition lay before him, more wealthy and powerful beyond any Greek's wildest imagination, the Achaemenid Persian Empire. By Alexander's time, it was the largest empire in world history, hitting its territorial peak under Darius I, with a range of over 2 million square miles, stretching from the Black Sea to the edge of the Indus. It wasn't only large in terms of geographic spread, it carried roughly 25% of the world's population within its borders during the reign of Darius. Our earliest Greek sources about the empire are from the historian Herodotus of Halicarnassus, who traced the ethnic Persians to somewhere along the borders of modern-day Iran and Afghanistan in his histories. The name Achaemenid, or Achaemenid, is borrowed from a legendary ancestor figure of the Persians named Achaemenes, according to a inscription of Darius I himself. Herodotus listed the foundation of the empire somewhere around 559 BC by the conqueror and future king Cyrus the Great. Herodotus claims that his birth was foretold in a prophetic dream involving urination and vines enveloping the world. It gets a bit strange, including stories of cannibalism and baby switcheroos. But when he came to age, Cyrus toppled the previously dominant Median Empire, Mede ironically becoming the name by which the Greeks referred to the Persians, and conquered his way across the known world, establishing himself as Shahanshah, or King of Kings. After Cyrus's death in 530, allegedly at the hands of a Scythian step-queen named Tomyris, but more likely of old age, his son Cambyses II led expeditions into Egypt, adding it to the realm. According to tradition, it is alleged that Cambyses became gripped in the throes of madness, brutalizing the population of native Egyptians, killing a sacred bull and desecrating religious sites, and, as a result, the gods punished him with an early demise through an accidental self-inflicted wound in 522. One of the more interesting events in a Herodotus tale suggests that a coup had taken place almost immediately during and after Cambyses' death, where Bardia, an alleged half-brother who, in actuality, was an imposter magi, claimed the throne. A band of noblemen, including one Darius, fought and slew the imposter. The result was the coronation of Darius I, who recorded the event on a mountainside carving called the Behestun inscription to exonerate himself of any suspicion of treason. Herodotus himself recorded a version of this inscription, but it is questionable at best on whether this story is true to begin with in the first place. Regardless of any shady origins, the reign of Darius was a long and prosperous one for both himself and the empire. He established satrapies, a form of provincial governance that allowed for the division of taxation and revenue collection by the state. The position of satrap was always held by ethnic Persians and Iranians, and was generally held for life and by only the most trustworthy of the great king's associates, which, as we will see, this doesn't always appear to be the case. The difficulty of administering over such a diverse empire, both in terms of ethnic population and landscape, required some additional reworkings. 
the logistical problems of maintaining and moving garrisons of Persian troops in order to secure provinces was solved by installing local, loyal local leaders in these regions in order to manage their own populaces with the best efficiencies. They also encouraged service in the military by offering land as rewards, depending on the class of the individual and what role they were in the army. When local forces weren't enough, the Persian military used an intricate highway system for efficient movement. The most famous of these, the Royal Road, was reported by Herodotus to be approximately 2,000 miles long and could carry an army from Susa in the Persian heartland all the way to Sardis on the east coast of Asia Minor in only roughly 90 days. A messenger could reportedly travel the distance in little over a week, switching horses at the various posts stationed along the way. Darius also ordered the construction of the legendary city of Persepolis in 518 to replace Pasargardai as capital of the empire, and he rebuilt the ancient city of Susa as part capital and part vacation home for the royal family and nobles to escape the summer heat. Thanks to his innovations, the amount of wealth accumulated by Darius is legendary. Herodotus claimed that the annual tribute for each year was approximately 14,560 talents of silver per year. For a reference, one talent would be the equivalent of an extremely generous daily payment for 6,000 Greek mercenaries. By the time Alexander marched into Persepolis, this wealth accumulated to an enormous amount of well over 100,000 talents in stock. The Persian religious philosophy was one of tolerance allowing the worship of many gods by their respective subject peoples, and later the Persians and royal house would transition into a form of Zoroastrianism. The royal family held a special connection to one god, though, Ahura Mazda. The great king was Ahura Mazda's will personified, effectively becoming a figurehead for the god on earth. This was not a Persian innovation, though, as the idea of a god-king had been set precedent since well before the 9th century BC, representing older and Babylonian and Assyrian pantheons such as Marduk. As such, court rituals were very important, particularly proskinesis, a ritual involving a bow of various degrees by subjects of lesser standing to the great king. Despite being part of standard Persian politeness, this particular ritual was regarded by Greeks and Macedonians alike as being the pinnacle of subservience and Orientalism. What is important to note is that this will also make an appearance later in Alexander's reign, where the ideas of deification and the adoption of Persian custom will draw the ire and open complaints of his fellow Macedonians. Despite the focus on the empire's interior, Darius was no stranger to military action. As I mentioned in the previous episode involving the Greeks, Darius expanded the empire into the Black Sea region and into Asia Minor. After the Ionian Revolt, Darius then turned to the Balkans and mainland Greece, initiating the first invasion of the Greco-Persian Wars. Sometime after his defeat at Marathon in 490, Darius began to plan his second invasion until his death in 486, whereupon his son Xerxes I inherited the throne. Xerxes, insecure in his position on the throne, put down rebellions and political intrigues that developed sometime after Darius's passing. From 483 on, his efforts concentrated on solidifying his position and continuing his father's mission to punish the unruly Greeks. The numbers of troops at his command for invasion is listed by Herodotus at well over 2 million men. While completely absurd, it does reflect the logistical skill and volume of manpower the Persian Empire was able to levy, equip, and provision from all corners of the empire, ranging from Phoenician sailors to Indian troops. Despite some initial successes, Xerxes' invasion ultimately ended in failure in 479, 
the mass of Persian units seems to have been unable to match the abilities of the Greek hoplite and phalanx maneuvers, nor the sailing abilities of the city-states in the waters of the Aegean. Indeed, the losses did not seem to favor support for Xerxes, and he was later assassinated by a court official sometime in 465. His son, Artaxerxes I, managed to wrestle control up for the throne, and the policy towards the Greeks began to change. No longer wanting to get involved directly through military means, Artaxerxes thought it wiser to undermine the political power of the Athenian-led Delian League and other potential Greek hegemons through supplying the opposition with Persian money. This practice continued for the next several decades, while the monarchy itself began to suffer from internal strife, after the next three rulers ended up assassinated before coming to the reign of Artaxerxes II. In 402 BC, the younger brother of Artaxerxes, one Cyrus the Younger, incited a rebellion and hired 10,000 Greek mercenaries, including one Athenian named Xenophon, who recorded the event in his work titled The Anabasis, or The March Up Country. In a strange twist of fate, the forces of Artaxerxes were effectively beaten and driven off the field by the Greek mercenaries at the Battle of Canaxa in 402. Cyrus, on the other hand, was killed, and the Greeks found themselves stranded and leaderless in the Persian heartland, facing a understandably annoyed Artaxerxes. Xenophon then took command, and led his fellow comrades out of Persian territory to the safety of the Black Sea. This event, in many ways, served as a prototype for the campaigns of Alexander, who very likely read the work, and had it serve as a rough outline on how to defeat Persian troops in their own territory. It also is a display of the inability of the Persian military to deal with Greek heavy infantry, and, paradoxically, the increasing reliance on hoplites to win victories by the Persians themselves. Artaxerxes II ruled for an impressive 45 years, and the reign was a relatively successful one. Plutarch even dedicated a biography for his life, the only non-Greek or Roman to receive such an honor, and commented favorably about the even-handedness and composure with which the great king ruled. At the same time, the satrapy of Egypt was lost in the 370s, and continued rebellions plagued the empire later in his life, culminating in the great satrap revolt in 366, which was effectively quelled by 360. Despite being faced with an invasion of the Spartan Agesilaos II, Artaxerxes uses vast wealth to fund the Greek enemies of Sparta, even serving as interlocutor to broker a peace to end the Corinthian War in 386. Artaxerxes III, son of Artaxerxes II, took control in 358 BC. He initially dealt with some internal turmoil at the beginning of his reign, but managed to successfully reconquer Egypt in 343, which remained part of the empire till the very end. While the empire was being rocked by internal strife quite repeatedly, it seems to have been standing on its own rather successfully. Scholars of the past have often been tempted to moralize and argue that the Persians were succumbing to decadence and vice among the honeypot harems instead of effectively ruling the empire like Cyrus the Great or Darius I. In truth, the empire was an effectively running machine. The traditions of the Persian Empire would continue to influence the rulers who followed in its collapse, particularly Alexander, who was later characterized in his career as succumbing to despotism and orientalizing in his adoption of Persian manners and customs as he transformed from king to imperial ruler. The provincial and tax systems would be transplanted into the Macedonian Empire and would form the bedrock for which the future successor kingdoms managed their territories. One thing to note, however, is that during the earlier part of the reign of Artaxerxes III, 
one dissident satrap named Artabazus fled to the court of a formerly unimportant kingdom and former satrapy in the Balkans. After the Battle of Carinae in 338, the attention of Artaxerxes was now drawn towards it fully, and with reasonable concern. It appears that the Shahanshah, king of kings, king of the four corners of the world's greatest empire, where the son of Ahura Mazda never set, would eventually come to heel by the spearpoint of the king of Macedonia. <laughs>